0: Welcome to another episode of the One Big Idea podcast. I am joined this week by Rob Abelow. Did I, did I say that your last name right? Yeah, you nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Awesome. Uh, Rob is the writer of Where Music's Going, a phenomenal new newsletter that I have personally subscribed to to get all of the news around music and Web3 uh, and just a, a great guy in the space, someone whose threads I follow. Uh, Pretty religiously on Twitter. So, Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, why don't we start? Just give a little bit of background about who you are, uh, how you got your start in music.
1: Uh, Cool. Okay. So, I'll go way back, I guess. Uh, You know, music just integral to everything in my life growing up. Uh, Love music, love, you know, bands that created worlds around their music and what they were doing. Love, Kind of like the community that happened around bands that's like outside of their own control that happened organically um and those things and playing music were always such like the connective tissue for me with all of my friends growing up kind of all like my formative experiences so the bands we love what we listen to and then performing music together um Unfortunately, I was never all that good at playing music uh, while most of my friends were were really, really fantastic. And I went to business school, um, wasn't totally certain what I wanted to go into was a little bit disillusioned with like the tracks that most of my friends were going into, like straight into Wall Street. And, you know, for me, that was money for making money. It wasn't purpose driven. Um, and this idea kind of popped up when it, when some of my friends' bands started to do quite well and asked and needed managers. Um, I had no idea how to do that, but they said, Hey, you know, you love music. We're friends. You're in, you know, business school. You have that kind of mind. Why don't you manage what we're doing? And these are fairly small projects. Uh, but it kind of got my feet wet and, and made me like this unlock in my brain of how I could kind of marry these two things. Um, So I started interning at a bunch of companies, some agencies and things like that. And the day I graduated from school, I started uh, at a booking agency. And I was there for about 18 months is all I lasted working for somebody else uh, before I ended up kicking off my own thing. So I knew I wanted to get more into artist management than booking because to me, that's like the closest thing to being with the band like you're fully aligned you're involved in every single decision um so i kind of lucked out that the first management client i had was a the singer in a band called dispatch uh which it's kind of like this interesting independent story east coast bands like when i was in high school everybody was obsessed with them an independent band who ended up going on to um sell out three nights at Madison Square Garden, like the first ever independent band to to sell out the venue. And I had my first meeting with Pete backstage at Madison Square Garden at 23 years old, trying to convince him that I should manage his solo career. Somehow I managed to do that. And kind of off the back of that started my own management company, um, which then just turned into uh, started a record label. Which was because I was managing a couple artists that nobody wanted to sign, so I started doing it myself. Um, And then that those records, the first couple records, did did quite well, and um, I joined into a partnership with Warner Music Group to uh, be distributed through ADA to have a team of people that I shared with some other labels to help grow what we were doing and have them fund uh, a lot of the label, and that was fantastic learned a ton. Uh, but after a few years of that, that became more of a, a label services. And I you know, I had some downsides of working in the that system, which was every artist I signed to an indie label deal. I had to also sign to a major label deal, but they didn't actually get that money. Right away, it was like, in case Atlantic or Warner at any time wants to upstream you, they just can. Yeah. Um, so then I ended up taking it back independent and it's, you know, been running that for another seven years. Uh, so I just crossed 10 years with the label. Um, but really, like, kind of the whole track of it was, you know, focusing on artists that kind of build with, like, the Web3 ethos before Web3 was really a thing. So artists that are, like, outside of the mainstream, they could use streaming or other tools to, to build audience. But it was really about building 1,000 true fans, uh, or hopefully a lot more than a 1,000 true fans. And um, I found a lot of success with that. And I think that's why, you know, I naturally kind of gravitate into to Web3 these days.
0: Yeah, so a lot of ground to cover. Let's start with the management side. You know, we don't get an opportunity to speak to a lot of managers. I think it may be romanticized uh, in terms of what people see. Uh, you know, maybe they're thinking of like, entourage and E or, you know, whatever the case may be, what, what is it like the life of a manager? What are your responsibilities? How are you working with an artist on a day-to-day basis?
1: I mean, the, the crazy thing about an artist manager is that the role is so undefined and early on in the career of an artist, it's like every single, you know, vertical you're in charge of and perhaps Doing until you can find somebody else or hire somebody else to do that role. Uh, so that's really like you're kind of the co CEO with the band of the band. Um, and so that's strategy and marketing and finding all of their release partners. And, you know, depending on who you are as a manager, you may even be involved in the creative in some degree as like a sounding board or helping them find collaborators. So that's what's so interesting about it is it, it spans like, you know, everything the artist is doing. But what it means is that when you wake up every day, there's no obvious, this is what you do. You know, you you got to figure it out and you're kind of the... um you know, the decider of what's next.
0: Yeah, I actually managed for two years back in the day and the, the CEO part was definitely what I signed up for. The element that I think a lot of people don't realize and going into such a emotional personal space with a a creative talent is like you're their first line of defense. Like you're their psychiatrist at times, your therapist, like, yeah, it's not just the, it's managing people. And I think that that is applicable to a, a lot of different fields, but there is no like turning it on and off. There is no nine to five. It's like you live and breathe that. And so I'm curious, like what traits you have found in good artist managers, because I think there's like a type of temperament that <laughs> t- tends to lend itself for people who can do really well in artist management and those who, you know, may maybe should stick to a, uh, a desk job.
1: Uh, bringing up the kind of psychologist or like therapist thing. I mean, I, I have specific artists where like, you know, we've had husband and wife who divorced and stayed in a band together for years, you know, and talk about therapy uh, as manager. Yeah, I I think everybody kind of has their strengths. And I think knowing what your strengths are and applying those, uh, you have to be okay with the uncertainty and not knowing what to do. You have to be okay with, especially as you're younger, and if you don't have like a day-to-day manager working with you, being available at all times. Um, I talk about it now, like it's you could plan your day as much as you want, but like the band gets a flat tire on the way to the next show, and everything's out the window, and it's like this, you know, get this done in the next few hours to make sure the next show happens, or you know, like we we ran out of merch, you know, super quickly in the first few shows, and now we need to find like a single day printer and an overnight shipper, you know, you you don't plan for those things ahead, and you have to just, you know not only do you have to handle it, but you kind of have to be the person who's calm and like triaging these things as they come in. Um, so I think, you know, being able to like handle whatever comes after, comes at you is is a big trait that's necessary.
0: Yeah, dealing with ambiguity is, is top of mind for sure. I, I actually have a story from when I was working at Amazon Music. We were getting ready to launch Amazon Music Unlimited, which is our paid service offering competitor to Spotify. We had to go and like license a lot of independent artists, one of which at the time that this was happening was Frank Ocean because he was moving off of his Universal deal and he was going to release Blonde. And so we're talking to 360 and trying to like get Frank on board with this. And Frank is in Paris and had forgotten his phone. And so one of the day-to-day managers flew from LA to Paris on like a moment's notice to give Frank his phone. So in terms of like the type of things that you have to, you have to deal with sometimes uh, just like always, always being on the ready and on the move. You mentioned another concept that I want to make sure the artist is from, or the, uh, the audience is familiar with this idea of like an upstream and what an upstream looks like between like an independent label and a major label. Can you define what that is? Yeah.
1: I mean, so, you know, my situation was a little bit unique, but I mean, the major labels have kind of their tentacles in a lot of different places, right? So they kind of have the wholly owned major labels, you know, that, you know, those brand names, and then they have maybe some sub labels they partially own, or they have partnerships with, or labels that are just distributed through, you know, distribution companies they own. Um, and a lot of times, when an artist is, you know, maybe being developed, and they're working on, you know, an indie label that's, you know, either directly part of a major or not, um, and maybe there's a moment where uh, it's obvious that like more gasoline being poured on this fire, you know, a global team that is going to kind of take it to the next level is required. Uh, you, an artist can be upstreamed from that indie label into a major label deal where there's a structure that kind of compensates the indie label for that. Maybe that's some amount of money. Maybe that's, you know, a percentage of royalties. Maybe that's continuing to be involved in some way directly, um, you know, in the brand name and in the creative. But, you know, the artist is now signing and being upstreamed into a bigger major label deal. And now it's tapping into everything they have to offer. I actually think it's, you know, if you're going to go to a major label, it's one of the best ways to get there because you're getting there off the back of likely of more, real organic growth that's been developed in the right way.
0: And then you're being signed to build on that, not necessarily on some viral
1: moment that happened.
0: Agreed. And are these upstream deals typically negotiated ahead of time or is it operate more as like a first right to move into that major label system?
1: I think it depends on the, on the situation. So, so mine was unique. I was, I was part of something called independent label group that was kind of Mm -hmm. built to do this. So With mine, they were all pre-negotiated and it was like the same deal that was kind of the artist had to sign on day one, even when they signed with me. And it was like, you're also signing this addendum that's a five label contract with this big advance. And everyone kind of understood that like, if the artist is blowing up and we want to move them to Atlantic, you're probably going to renegotiate that contract. You're probably not going to use that. But it was there to kind of give structure and and make sure that, you know, you weren't starting from scratch. Um, There's times where these things are like not predefined whatsoever. You know, you can have, uh, you know, say I signed someone to a three album deal and it's going really well and I have no connection to a major. But after the first record, it's clear that like this just needs more resources than what my small indie has. You know, we can approach or be approached by majors and then just start right from there, you know, and just make sure every party is happy with the way that deal is put together.
0: Makes, makes sense. And then moving into your, your journey into web three, you talked about the ethos of uh, partners, artists that you would be looking for like the ethos ethos that already represented web three. What are some of those like tent poles of artists that would gravitate towards the space?
1: I think for me, it's the artists that are really focused on sustainable careers, like long-term focus, and ideally not on on looking at like the vanity metrics and saying like, okay, like what is a meaningful career to me? Do I want to see 500 to 1,000 people in every single room in the next few years versus I want X amount of monthly Spotify streams, right? And, and, you know, looking at what, what types of bands do you look up to? You know, what kind of careers do you want to model yourselves after? And, you know, I think like there's, you know, going back to like, you know, the the management traits, so much of it's also about making sure you match up right with the artist you're working with for a lot of reasons. You know, one, you're going to be kind of like their protector and their voice in a lot of different ways, but you have to be aligned on how you're going to build things. And the artists I work with, we would have conversations early on about, you know how deeply are you thinking about everything you're building it's not just the music it's the world you're creating what is it kind of a you know a question i would ask that in some ways is like to get under their skin but to show them like the way i think about things is like what does it smell like when people walk into your show and the idea is it's almost impossible to answer but like you need to be thinking about all these different layers of what you're creating and i think the artists who are thinking that deeply about what they're building Um, other types of artists I like to partner with that are probably going to want to have that long-term focus in building fans and are also probably going to be able to use web three tools for world building.
0: Well, I'm curious what answers you've
1: gotten to that question. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, some, a lot of sweat, uh, (laughs) lavender, but, uh, I actually had a band who ended up then like
0: having incense and stuff like that they would have at their shows, like based on that question. That's that's too funny. So then when you're thinking about growing an artist's career in this the landscape that we're in today, you know, what role does streaming have? What role does live events have? Is it bespoke depending on like the artist and their goals, or is there like a defined playbook that you're seeing based on you know macro conditions of of how music is distributed? I I, it's definitely bespoke, but
1: the way I view it, I, I see streaming as like the top of funnel more than anything else, like, sure, you're going to make money there. And and there's certainly artists who, you know, that is like where the bulk of their income is coming from. I, I honestly look at it as like, okay, that's what the way to introduce people for people to discover me, then I got to do everything I can to get them from there and other discovery places down to things that are closer to me. So, you know, maybe following me on Spotify is better than just having her be in a playlist, you know, following me on socials, is maybe one step up from that. You know, getting their email is you know several steps up from that. Getting them in their your community, whatever that may be, is is more steps. And also treating all of these different um, kind of audience segments very differently. You know, and speaking to them very differently. So understanding, you know, as they get closer and closer to you, that a they're much more valuable to you. You know, like exponentially more valuable to you than somebody who's just a a listener. Um, And they kind of want something different from you. So you need to find ways to, you know, talk to them and and give them things that's very different than what you, maybe you're putting out just generally on social media and other places. Um, You know, and I think a lot about like what the shape of your audience is. We we think of just like the volume of your audience, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot about the shape of it, you know, like, you're always going to have more people who are aware of you and like casually listening than that are super fans, but that shape is very different for all types of artists. And I I like to work with artists where that shape is kind of more lopsided towards like fans and core fans. So, you know, we may not have, you know, 25 million Spotify uh, monthly listeners, but we have like this really high balance of like core fans compared to our number that are buying everything we're doing and going to every show. And I think artists need to think about like, what do you want that shape to look like? And then everything you do downstream from that is based on that, you know? So are we just going to be like wide awareness and like Spotify, then whatever trickles down from there, or are we all about like driving these really deep connections
0: and that should change how you market and release music. hundred percent. So then how do you build for that fandom, that deep fandom that exists in that shape that you're speaking to? Because the reality is particularly on streaming a lot of listenership is passive we put on a playlist we're spending less and less time like leaning into the music we're listening to and more like allowing algorithms and and generated playlists to dictate to us what we listen to on a daily basis so how do you how do you get someone from that to saving the song learning more get like taking them down the funnel it's hard it's really hard it's harder
1: than ever i mean i you know Part of the reason I shifted more into the tech and like kind of systemic side of things um, and then into Web3 is because I was actually becoming a bit disillusioned on the label side of the value that I could actually give to emerging artists and making a difference for them and like reaching audience aside from just putting their music out into like, you know, the attention slot machine that would maybe get something or not that didn't necessarily have anything to do with my work. Um, but that's why I'm so excited about web three, because I think there's tools, but there's also like incentive structures that are kind of underpinning everything that maybe change the behavior from passive to more active and like the relationship, um, so it's hard. I think it kind of comes from like the ethos of everything you're doing, like even through the, just the creation of the content, right? So if your strategy is just like, okay, we need to have viral moments and, you know, we'll put out a, a hundred things. And if three of those go viral, I don't even really care about the other 97. It's all about like that wide awareness. That's fine. That's a strategy. But if everything for you is like cultivating these like really intense relationships, then you should be creating music for like that very specific persona that's truer to who you are and like not ever really straying for that. Being okay with maybe not having as much viral moments, but understanding that when someone finds you, it's going to be like that exact thing for them and they're going to go deeper. Um, There's definitely more tools out there. So like, you know, there's the pre-saves and, you know, Spotify's even launching some things like fans first, you know, it, it remains to be seen how useful they're still kind of like, and what is that for, for the audience? So yeah, so Fans First is like something that they initially rolled out a few years ago, which was that you could launch as an artist exclusive merch or ticket presales to your top like X percent listeners on Spotify. And they would do that by directly emailing them. And that was a really great way of connecting with them. The problem is, one, they they like only a, a very small amount of artists were able to use it. That was, it, it wasn't like a widely available tool. You had to go through contacts at Spotify. Uh, it's still like them in control of all the data. It's heavily flow. gated. Yes. Like uh, you're not even getting, I'm not emailing them. It's Spotify emailing them. But things like that are like a step in the right direction. Um, and then I think it's just, it's like the long game. You know, it's always just making sure there's one breadcrumb that gets it to the next place. You know, even on social, it's like making sure that, you know, your link in bio is exactly how it needs to be getting people to the right place. Like anytime somebody wants to go deeper, it's obvious and easy and you're pulling them there and you're like rewarding them for it. Uh, is is, you know, just doing that behavior
0: over and over and over again. So if you're, if you're optimizing for fandom, what is the one metric as an artist that you should care about more than any other? Is it it play count? Is it follows? What what is that one metric they should be focused on? I've actually been trying to work on like what that metric is. And it, it's definitely yeah. a little
1: bit different. Like, okay, so the reason why I think like vanity metrics work so easy is that like A, they're publicly available and that they're uh so easy like to compare from one to the next. You know, it's like we all have streams, we all have monthly listeners, we all have followers. Um I think there's stats you can use just like how many ticket sales, merch sales, people in your community, people, honestly, people on your email list. Like you tell me you've got 50,000 people on your email list. Like that's huge. You can do so much with one email, selling an album, selling tickets. So like, to me, that is a huge thing. It's a little different for each artist, but I'm kind of coming up internally with my own thing, which is like a tech, you know, or, or, you know, product uh, metric, which is just lifetime value. And I kind of use that to look at like all the different segments of my fans and estimate how much value they're giving to my business every year and how long I expect them to continue being a fan, you know? So a casual listener is going to be giving you something like 10 to 20 cents a year, you right. know, and you hope that they stay on for a couple of years, a core fan for, for uh, there's a band I manage called Rubble Bucket. I'm going to see them tonight, Philadelphia, a core fan for them does like 65 to $75 a year for us. Wow. And they're and like the average kind of like length, you know, it's tough for me to get the data, but it's like four or five years. So this is the type of band that has like, they have like 400,000 Spotify monthly listeners, but they're selling out Brooklyn steel at 2,300 people in New York. Like yeah. that that's the kind of interesting audience shape that I'm talking about. And, and for them, it's that lifetime value. It's like, Every audience, segment type, how many do we have and how much value are they bringing back to us?
0: Yeah, and you have, to your point, like a lot of these viral sensations that can't sell like a 500 cap venue in middle of America because they people aren't actually gravitating to the artists themselves, just like the sound they heard on TikTok or, you know, the song that came on their pollen playlist. When I think about segmentation, there's like three buckets that were coming to mind as you were speaking. There's like the intent to follow, which is like, okay, I've made like the active intent to like follow your, your socials and maybe I'll read it all the time. Maybe I won't. That's like, that's the one level of like fandom. Then there's like intent to participate, which is I'm actually interacting with your content, you know, following and like making reactions, comments and the like. And then the third one, the most sticky is like intent to purchase. Like I'm going to your shows, I'm buying your merch, I'm buying your NFTs. And that is obviously where most of the lifetime value is and getting someone to move from the follow to the participate to the purchase in and of itself is like a funnel to, to move people through. I love that phrasing. That's great. I'm going to, I'm going to use that.
1: Uh, and it's interesting. It. I think Put it in the newsletter. <laughs> <I'm totally laughs> coming out tomorrow. My idea. Um, I love it. <laughs> it's interesting though. I mean, I think like the participation and the purchase are getting more and more intertwined, you know, yeah. with web three in, in a really positive way.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about web three a bit. What are the tactics and strategies that you're seeing artists use in web three as part of their, their career?
1: Yeah, I mean, I it's so early and it's difficult because yeah, difficult, especially for like established artists. I actually think because you already have this audience, and ninety five plus percent either don't know or don't care or don't want to learn about a lot of the tools that are you know are on offer. Um, but I think for those types of artists, if you can find ways to like Trojan horse web three in that they don't even necessarily know they're using it or if they're using it as, as like a bonus to something they're already getting. And then you drop like some delight to them later. So, you know, medallion is like a fan club um, web three fan club app that's onboarded some pretty, you know, pretty big, but like artists, but artists that tend to have like really dedicated, like real fans, My favorite band, My Morning Jacket, just did it. And what was really interesting to see with it was that all my friends and my wife, who's like a huge fan, were like, Hey, is this that Web3 thing you were talking about? (laughs) You know, and like they did it and they loved they came into this like world. They didn't have to make a wallet, and they just got all this extra stuff. And then like a week or two later, MMJ like gave them a free NFT, but that NFT had like a a live performance from Hollywood Forever Cemetery. They're like, wow, this is amazing. And then, like, a couple of weeks later, their token gave them access to like pre sale before anybody else for the, the shows they just announced. That structure, it's not based on like, hey, we're going to sell you this big thing now that has like dubious value. It was like, no, this is free. Come, in, you're our biggest fans. Come here. Like, this is your new home where you're living with everyone. And then they're slowly laying on things on top. And then ideally, they're going to be able to tokenize so many of the things they're doing in their world that all kind of comes back into that home base. And I think it's going to click for people like why this matters. Um, For artists that are newer, there's actually like more available to them because they can go like all out into this space and build with it on day one. And I think the artists who are doing that, who are like, okay, this is like where I live. And they're using the full range of tools and like kind of building... Worlds around it. So, you know, every song, you know, within the album has like the is a different, like, you know, like setting in this world. And there's like a visual, like maybe it's, you know, super interactive and immersive kind of like websites that are maybe even AR that are based on every single song. And you can collect each one. And as you're being involved, you know, exploring it, if you do other things, you could earn more NFTs to unlock more, like essentially the ability to have a blank canvas and go really, really deep. I think is is so incredible because it's just so hard to break through the noise. So if you're kind of in this new space and doing something different and using all these tools in a big way, it just like separates you from 99% of what's out there.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Do you think the value proposition for artists changed depending on the scale at which they're operating? Like you mentioned my morning jacket. It's one of the bigger bands that, that exist. The way in which that they introduce this technology probably looks and feels a lot different than an underground indie act that's like coming up at the very beginning. And in terms of the the ability that is afforded to them to experiment as well, and like starting like very fresh and young with their audience and kind of being able to mold the direction they want to go. Um, and then also, you know, on the on the mainstream side, making sure that they don't like alienate anyone. Alienate or like, you know, the the trust that
1: you've built with your audience is just the most valuable thing, you know, and to violate that is, you know, you're going to do such irreparable harm. So if you do something that feels like a money grab or do it the wrong way, you know, that's – you have to make sure there's enough upside there and you got to make sure you're doing it, you know, for the right reasons and you're doing it like with – you know, very well thought out intentions for those types of artists, for sure.
0: So what, what then do you see as like the main points of value for fans to get involved? Is it access? Is it collectability? Is it the ability? Is it speculation? Like which ones are you most gravitated towards? Um, Speculation is one that like, I'm not as
1: behind as others. Like I, you know, but maybe I'm wrong. I I hope there's any reason why to like grow the value of music. So like, I hope that becomes a huge thing that like, it's the financialization of it that, that helps. I don't think besides with like a small group of patrons, Mm -hmm. that's necessarily where people come in. Um, I really do think there's kind of this struggle with web three early on. We're like, it's like building the eye in evolution where it's like before the eye is built, like it doesn't do anything. And like, what's the value of it. But then once you have it, it's like, Oh wow, I could see all these things. And I think of that with like web three, because while there are, there is value certainly right now, the real value of it comes when it's everywhere. Because the, the idea is like, these things are interoperable. So all of these interactions and things I own and like actions I've taken and data surrounding me ports, from place to place to place to place. But it's only valuable if there's a lot of different places to port it. You know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I need like all my tickets to, you know, be tokenized. I need all my merch purchases to be tokenized. I need like my streaming activity, all these other behaviors to all kind of be on chain with my ability to decide who can or can't see that. So that when I then interact with artists, they know all of the behavior. And I think ultimately it's when that's underpinning so many different interactions we're taking throughout the music industry it gives platforms and artists the ability to like really build like great reward and incentive structures to fans and and, and things on top of that before we get there you know i think it's just like glimpses of what that is so you know it's using having this thing in my wallet to unlock something new. So something I go back to is like, you know, live shows are like these huge moments of like connection between an artist and a fan. And there's, but there's a couple like things we're not capturing in that moment. One is like those fans are mostly anonymous. Like I don't, as an artist and manager, like we don't get that data. And I want to find ways to know who these people are. So what can I give them? To get that information right now. And I could use like NFTs or Web3 in a lot of different ways to do that. Right. So it's like claim this thing, or maybe like the merch or the tickets have claimable stuff that takes it out of the hands of Live Nation, Ticketmaster, who are hoarding that data. So, like, that's one thing. But then say I get that and I have this amazing moment with them. People leave that show and they're like at this high, and that high slowly fades you know, as every day goes by. And what I'd love to be able to do if I had that connection with them, like they had like a NFT ticket stub in their wallet. And they didn't realize like when they got this NFT ticket stub, like I didn't charge them extra. It just happened like, hey, make this wallet, put this stub in there. Okay, cool, whatever. What if like on the way home from the show, I send to everybody's wallet behind the scenes content or maybe even like a recording of the show that only exists Because you have this ticket stub in your wallet. And then what if two weeks later, I do some other kind of activation based off the fact that like, I know you were there in the room with those other 500 people. Like, what can I do to like continue making that like big moment that we had more special? And then what if a year later, when I come back to town, I can use anybody who has that token in their wallet to unlock the pre-sale. Or, you know, maybe like those people can vote on, where we're going to play, what we're going to, to me, it's like, you can still do those things early just in bits and pieces. And I don't know, as a manager and an artist, like, it's like, how can we connect more deeply? And I, I hope that gives a lot of
0: value to fans. So two, two elements. I'm going to focus on the latter. One, what I'm hearing from you right now is it is very early and a lot of the value that is being created in web three is actually fairly siloed. I think we get to a place where when more things come online, like tickets and merch, it becomes composable where one plus one equals five. Like we just can't see what it looks like when everything is able to connect. So like if you're a childish Gambino fan and you have five ticket stubs from him, maybe it gets you access to like not just his concert, but like a new up and coming artist who can then look and see, you know, similar artists that are in that same vein and and try to retarget them. Second element that I want to spend a little bit of time on is this idea of effectively retargeting. It's more or less a web three cookie in the sense of, okay, I now have a direct relationship with you. I can use that to like give you more information, extend this experience, keep it like more sticky. There there is potentially like a dark pattern that could exist there where Effectively, you're giving power to artists or whoever to send information to people that they don't want. Anyone who's like spent time in NFTs has probably a hidden folder with like a thousand NFTs, you know, and that's just because people, the, the wallet addresses are public and people can send you things and it leads to nefarious actors. It leads to scams or just things that people don't want. It reminds me of like, how do we avoid? Getting into a U2 Apple situation, and for I'm probably aging myself here, but for people who don't no, remember, it's a great example. Yeah, yeah, for people who don't remember, uh, U2 Apple dropped a U2 album to everyone who had an iPhone, and the overwhelming reaction was, "I didn't ask for this. I didn't want this. Like, why is this on my phone?" And it felt it felt very predatory. So, uh, how have you thought about that? The balance between, "Wow, this is great. I have unfettered access to my fans with." needing to protect their privacy and ultimately like what, what they want to interact with. It's a really tough
1: question. You know, it opens up like, okay, we want to have data not locked into platforms and we want, you know, the users and like the maybe more direct parties to have access to it. But by doing that, you open up all these other problems. Uh, I think that's hopefully handled to some degree by uh kind of permission structures of who can use this information you know but of course that can be violated uh and then also kind of like ui layers that sort of control like what is being shown and displayed to you versus like what was kind of sent to you i mean even in like the most you know bare minimum right now you kind of have like at openc when someone sends you something it's in like your hidden folder right exactly yeah you know so uh I think it's definitely an issue, you know, but I think like, hopefully there's ways we can solve it. Um, There's one thing I just want to like, because I talked not much about kind of music NFTs themselves, like directly having value. And there is another part of this. And I think we'll just have to see how this grows over time. But just like, we're spending more time in the digital world. You know, I'm older, but like kids who are 15, 16, who are in Roblox all day and using these different things, like, That's where you spend your time and, like, you have your digital avatar and you show who you are and what you're into and, like, what that means for who your identity is. And, like, if you look at the wall behind me, I have, you know, vinyl records here. These are all ones I've put out, but, like, they're kind of music NFTs in a sense, right? Like, I'm using these to show, like, what's important to me and, like, who I am and, like, the communities I'm in, etc., Uh, And music has always kind of had that power, right? Like you wear that band t-shirt in high school, like to show like who, like represents personality in all these different ways. So I think like once we're living in so many more of those worlds and you can take these things in some way to kind of like represent who you are and your identity, not just music NFTs, but all kinds of other things that represent some portion of like who I am and what my identity is are going to become more and more important. I just think that we have time before we get there.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, it is a paradigm shift uh, for people. They understand collecting art, collecting shoes, apparel, but they they don't necessarily understand collecting music. And what you just said, I think, illustrates that people have already been collecting music. Like they collect vinyls. You know how many people buy vinyls that don't have a record player? 50%.
1: that's like it's the, a lot. The, 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 exactly.
0: Yeah. It's like 50%. Uh, and I think this past year was the first year that uh, in a long time that vinyl surpassed CDs again, it's like 10% of it's an insane yep. number. Um, or the you know, merch shirts, ultimately it's a way of expressing their relationship with the art. And I think where we get to, and we're still way early, but like when wallets become super apps and the idea of like I can show who I am through what I collect. And it doesn't need to be like a purchase as much as things that are in my orbit that I identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that includes free NFTs and things like that. I think that will like rapidly accelerate adoption and it doesn't always have to be, where you're digitally spending time as much as like digital storage and being able to like view those, uh, you know, be able to view those uh, with other people. So I'm really interested to see how that develops. It, it, it's interesting because even like you know at Doodles, we're obviously taking a, a pretty big bet on how people think about collecting overall. Like we've seen, we mentioned Roblox earlier in Fortnite, like this idea of people expressing their identity and collecting things in digitally native places Uh, That already exists. And like, we're going to get to a place in a very short amount of time where younger generations, there's not even a conversation of like, why would I inherently give something that is digital value over something physical? Mm -hmm. They're already doing it. There's not like a trade off that they have. It's going to be the other way around. It's like, why do I want this physical thing? Yeah. Yeah. And I hear stories all the time of like parents who are like getting their kids something for Christmas and they don't want something physical. They want like Robux. like They want to be able to like buy something in a game that they can then like hang out. That's where they're hanging out with their friends. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it continues to develop. I want to take this in a little bit different direction because I was reading through your newsletters, which again I recommend everyone go check out. Uh, where music's going, we'll make sure that we link it in the show notes as well. But you put some like pretty interesting charts in terms of total global recorded music revenue. And for those that don't know, we reached the peak of that in 1999. That was back in the days of of CDs, and we're growing now. But we like we've reached a, a trough like in the early uh, like Spotify days at the end of Napster. And we've started to like grow, but not nearly back to those 99 peaks. I'm curious, do you think we ever get back there? And if so, like what does the environment need to look like to to reach those levels again? It's a good question. And I try to highlight those things because for one, that, that specific
1: chart you're mentioning, what everybody always shares is like the non-inflation adjusted chart. And they're just like, music was saved. It's huge. But like, what it kind of hides when you look at a chart like that, because like, oh, it's always it's going up from ninety nine, but it's not going up like in any of the same stratosphere as like video right. games or like TV and film, even and like so many other things. I mean, music is still smaller as a recorded music business than Nike sells shoes annually, right? So, like, but yet it's like so everywhere in everything we do and so important. Um, streaming. It's a very, very difficult situation because, like, I, I'm not like just anti-streaming by any means. Yeah. I think it's massively valuable. I think music became free, but was a pain in the ass to deal with. Um, so it became almost free to be less of a pain in the ass to deal with, and it's been hard to get off that idea of almost free. Like ten bucks a month, I don't really think about it, right? Yeah prices have not gone up whatsoever so I think streaming at just like the base level has to continually be rising raising prices and
0: that'll get us a little bit higher uh, like Netflix like, like why is Netflix. it not the same we're adding music every single day like why are we not why are we not continuing to reprice that exactly
1: and and you know in markets that like so uh, Sweden is like the first market for Spotify it was super fast in adoption they got to like maturity faster than anywhere else a couple years ago. Spotify raised prices there and they saw like no churn whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the revenue growth was slowing. It, like the, the the growth of revenue was slowing in that market. And then all of a sudden you saw a boom again as soon as they raised prices. And we're seeing the same thing happen in the US, UK and other markets where like the growth in streaming subscribers is really slowing. And we're going to need to raise that price. It's tough for Spotify because they've got like these com- The competitors to them and and those competitors, music is like one little element of their business. Can be a loss leader. Exactly. So it's it's tough. I think that they need to have different levels right there in the place that people are experiencing music to go participate deeper. Ideally, that goes directly to the artists. Like Mm -hmm. it's sending them off into, you know, merch and tickets. I think NFTs and like fan clubs and things like that could be integrated like really well into streaming platforms to help do that. Um, Or it's just, you know, finding ways to say, you know, how can we capture demand from the biggest fans? Like, you know, in in Asian markets, like micro tipping works really, really well. It hasn't worked well here yet, but like maybe with the younger generation, that's something they want to get involved in. Um, Other ways to kind of like drive revenue that's outside of subscription and outside of ads, uh, I think is huge. And then it's, it's, what can we do beyond streaming? And it's, I think if, you know, like merch tour, sure. But like in the music NFT world, how can we find different ways for these things to be perceived as valuable and that you're buying them for 10 or a hundred X, you know, a stream or, or a single. Um, I, I think like the, like structurally we have to have different ways of providing value and like getting that back. Um, but we're not going to like raise how much money is being made by just like being mad about it. Like fans are happy with streaming. Yeah. So like they have to like be like, Oh wow, I'm getting so much more out of this experience. And it's probably only going to be like that core fan contingent, like 10 to 20% of people. Um, so like I look back at streaming and it's like what streaming did was get more people around the world than ever paying some amount of money for music. Like not only did they get people who were pirating, but like people outside of like a lot of major markets never actually had access to like pay money. It was always piracy even before Napster. And there right. was like there was and those people now because of like streaming and mobile phones and internet are now putting money into the system. So like, there's more people than ever that are paying 10 bucks. But all the people that were spending like way more than 10 bucks a month now went from like, they were spending a hundred bucks a month on recording yeah. music, they're also down to $10. And we've just forgotten about those people. Like Spotify and everything has, has paid zero attention to like, okay, what is this segment of like, what are the power users and how can we give them value to get them to spend more money? And I think that's a, that's a big opportunity.
0: Yeah, I agree. And you would think they'd be incentivized to do so as well. Like if they can unlock and di- additional lifetime values we talked about earlier from their power users of whether it's people that are listening more that that have shown a propensity to like want to lean in and like purchase things on their app. I think that's why they have also moved in this direction of like being the creator hub of like this is ultimately with the updates that they're doing, this is where everything you do as an artist will hopefully live in their in their minds i'm curious like do you have any general thoughts on their? i know you mentioned in one of your newsletters that the new spotify for people are unaware they created like they updated their ui in the most meaningful way that that they've done in a long long time uh it puts like podcasts more at the forefront it puts video more at the forefront Um, there's like an AI generated DJ that will like follow you along and and give you recommendations. Have you played around with it? What are your, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. um, I have a lot of mixed feelings on it. Like I've been pushing for them to like have artists more in the forefront, like have artists as part of the context because they're just detached. It's like you listen to stuff on a playlist in the background. So I think that like having a feed that does seem more focused on like who the artist is, there's a benefit there. But, you know, if we're talking about artists having to make more content for another platform, like, you know, that's difficult. Yeah. I, I also think that like, they're trying to create a feed like TikTok, but like there's no user-generated content. So like the, the fact right. that people are going to really spend time engaging in that way seems unlikely. Uh, then there's like the AI DJ I actually find really interesting. It's almost a misnomer right now for what it is. Like I think maybe eventually yeah. it'll give you good context behind the music. And that's cool. So like if you're listening passively, Every once in a while, it's going to say, like, this is who the artist is and this is something about them. Cool. What I actually like about it is, like, it brings you the songs in five-song packets that are, like, yes. themed. So, like, I, yes, instead of exactly. just hitting, I can hit skip between those songs or I can hit the DJ and get, like, a new packet. So, it's, like, yeah. here's five songs in blues. Here's five songs on, like, this that, like, you were really into in 2018 you haven't listened to in yeah. a while. And I, I think that's really cool. Just, like, it's simple. But it's a new way of like experiencing, being able to like quickly flow through music.
0: Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it as well um, for that exact reason because I like going back through my like songs. I, I think this is part of the issue they're trying to to solve with as well is like people have these. I mean, I have thirteen years of like songs at this point. I was in the like Spotify beta in the U.S. when it was on desktop, so I, there's no way I can like properly organize and shuffle those at this point i enjoy the organized chaos of like pressing shuffle and seeing you know what happens uh but i i really do enjoy this like new feature of like let's give you packets to like walk through otherwise you just end up like listening to a song a couple times and then and then it goes away i'm interested to see how they continue to develop this platform it's clear to me that if they are you know we mentioned revenue earlier like if they are to increase the price they're going to have to make a product that is like 10X better than their nearest competitor. And the ways to do that right now are like exclusivity of content, which they can really only do on the podcasting side. Like we Mm -hmm. remember the early streaming days, those are gone. Like there's no more exclusivity windows. Uh, and then, yeah, building better, better product experiences that people want to spend time in. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. We, uh, we talked a little bit about AI and this is like kind of like faux AI or like it's a low level of AI compared to like where I think it goes in music. Obviously with the re- release of ChatGPT 4 it's been in the news a lot lately. You've also written about AI in music. What are your thoughts on its potential impact across the stack from like creative to discovery and listening? I'm I'm happy mentioning like across the stack because
1: I feel like we only talk about AI and music as what like for generative like music itself. And while that's hugely important and like maybe the most important thing to talk about it challenges, like what is it to be an artist? Um, There's like one of the biggest challenges of being an artist or like an artist manager is like, you're taking on more and more things that you have to do, but you have less and less resources to do them. So AI tools can actually be like incredible in your stack to like make social content, improve videos, artwork, Um, press photos, like you do marketing admin. So there's a lot of like things outside of like the core content or like, you know, I I did something like making lyric and static videos. Like think think about all these clips you need to now make on Spotify, right? Like there's apps you can go to where you upload in like your core content. And then for TikTok, for Instagram, for clips, they're going to export to you a bunch of options, you know, that already have like captions on them. Like that's huge. It's amazing. Um, I do think in terms of like the generative side, what it's going to do is like, so, so we've seen like the cost of making like, I have to choose my words carefully, but like adequate music, like music that fits a purpose, like for a playlist that's context driven or, you know, certain like uh, production house music, like you need it for like a use in between yeah. scenes and like a, a video game. Um, that the cost of creating that has gone down dramatically over the past bunch of years. It's widely available. Uh, and that's mostly made by like the long tail artist. that is going to be very easy for generative AI to just, you know, make it even cheaper and like 10,000 X the amount of it that's out there. And, you know, that's, you know, troublesome for artists, especially on the music production house side where there's a lot of like nine to five musicians who like, while they're trying to like do their like career, like their, their music career, they're paying the bills by like making music for commercials and video games. And like all those companies, like the ones that are like mass scale platforms, they, I know for a fact, they just, they own all of the stuff people have been making for years and they've already trained so much AI on it. And like, that's how it's all going to be. It's going to be like I want haunting music for this video game scene, and you just get it, you edit it. That that's troublesome.
0: Um, and you the- think about the why they would do that. Besides it being cheaper to create and and not having to deal with human talent, it's also fully owning something, not having to reach out to. As you know, we both know you. This is why, like video game music in particular, has not used a lot of. Uh, mainstream music because you have to go negotiate on both sides you know negotiate with the label negotiate with multiple publishers yeah. it's an entire nightmare of of trying to do i do not envy any music coordinators Yeah, <laughs> I like I mean, it for a little bit it's terrible especially
1: <laughs> if like a lot of small scale stuff you know like youtube yeah. content or whatever it's just like you can't you, you know they already have like tools to help automate that but like it's it's connecting pre-cleared music from like real artists that's gonna be yeah, yeah that's gonna go away to a degree i think yeah um th- but there's a couple other things i think there's like a paradox that's gonna happen i hope that there's gonna be a pushback to like caring about the artist behind the songs and the humanity and the authenticity and the community they're building around it because I think we're already seeing like the beginnings of people feeling that way with just like such a sea of endless faceless music. When mm-hmm. a lot of that is endless faceless and like you don't even know if it was created by an AI or human and There's so much of it. I, I, I think of it as like there was, you know, Casio keyboards and like synth went crazy in like the 80s and like everything was overproduced. And there was this like pushback against that that went to grunge you know, in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I i think we might see a similar type of thing where it's like, no, we want to see stuff that's like very clearly did not use like AI and overproduction and like it came from the heart. And that also that person was like, they're out there and they're building that community from day one. I think those things like the, the artist's face will be really important. Um, and then the other is like, yeah. you know, it's also just another tool in the stack. So like, yeah. The artists who know how to use it in really cool ways like there's probably going to be new genres and kind of like sub scenes and cultures that come up that are that are going to be successful
0: i i agree and at every turn of a new technology those that shied away from it usually didn't end up doing too well so i think leaning in and understanding like how it can benefit you and what you can take away from it is, is going to be an advantage there's you know to the point of wanting to understand as an audience like what you're listening to is like quote unquote real and we could get into a discussion of like what is real. I think often of like going back to our vinyl discussion earlier, the amount of people who actually do have full vinyl setups because it sounds warm. Like it it's an entire like experience to them where it could be a lot easier to just have everything on their, you know, the music on their pocket. Like they actually want to sit down, listen to the music, flip the the vinyl over, listen to the other side. I think there's going to be an entire market around verifiable like proof of identity mm-hmm. in across all uh, anything that AI could touch. And NFTs seem to reason to be like a way that that could stand out in the future of like, okay, this is a, a proof of humanity, proof yeah. of authenticity That's that this cool. wasn't like AI generated. Um, I, someone's going to build it. I've like talked about this idea enough times. If someone builds it and you heard it from me, give me like a little cut. That's all I ask. <laughs> Just like throw me a couple percentage points. Um, but cool. Rob, we are coming up to the top of the hour. I end every episode one. This has been fantastic. And like, thank you so much for coming on. Definitely got to have you on again. Um, we end every episode with the guest one big idea. So this could be any, you could take this anywhere you want from what your one big idea in music, one big idea about life, anything you want to leave the audience with.
1: Uh, okay. For, for something that come quickly to mind, I just think The thing that I go back to with like everything I think about how I'm going to build for an artist I work with, or how we should build infrastructure going forward, is that incentives drive everything. And if you're not thinking about that foundationally from day one on how you build new infrastructure for the music industry, a new business model, a new platform, it'll get away from you um, as you have pressures to scale that thing. And being really, you know, understanding of the like incentives that you're trying to create in the artist and in the fans who are interacting. And, you know, that goes back to why I'm so excited about web three, even though I think there's so many challenges is I think it's the one thing that I look at that if done right, can recreate like the incentives both for artists and for fans, you know, resetting, For artists, like the incentive structure to not create for virality, but to create for core fans and for those fans to like want to seek it out and find things they're in love with rather than stuff that just kind of fills the playlist. Um, So, yeah, hopefully that kind of fit into what you're asking for
0: lead with incentives. I think that is a great place to end it. Rob, again, thank you so much for your time. And to everyone listening at home, this has been another episode of One Big Idea, and we will catch you next week. Peace.